John's Gospel, chapter 3. Thank you, Bob. John's Gospel, chapter 3. For the last few weeks, we've been in the first three chapters of John's Gospel. We're not going to move forward to chapter 4. Uh, we're going to go in another direction next week, but we did want to complete uh, these first three chapters. So we're going to begin reading uh, in just a moment in John chapter 3 in verse 25. You know, every one of us desires to live a fruitful life. I was speaking with someone this past week who has a terminal illness, and the two of us agreed that, uh, you know, every one of us wants to know that our impact goes beyond our own life, and what we do, what we invest in, actually will make a significant difference, but it doesn't always happen that way. You know, on September uh, 30th, 1938, England's then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain uh, returned from Germany uh, jubilant. He had established an agreement with Adolf Hitler that Germany, after taking over Czechoslovakia, would cease its aggressive attack on innocent nations. And and, and this agreement, which was called the Munich Agreement, would assure that uh, World War II would be averted. And so he returned very confidently. It's very interesting that his successor at that time, while Chamberlain uh, was serving as uh, Prime Minister Warren rightly, and he said this, that it's a mistake. Don't think that it's all over now. And his words turned into be... Uh, prophetic. Because less than a year later, Germany invaded Poland, and we were very soon as a world in World War II. And Chamberlain said after that, after Germany invaded Poland, he said, this is a sad day for all of us, and none is it sadder than to me. Everything I've worked for, everything I've hoped for, everything I've believed in during my public life, has crashed into ruins. You know, he's not the only one that would invest his or her life in something and look back and say, boy, I spent a lot of time and it really didn't have an impact. In fact, Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You know, it's only the life in Christ that is truly fruitful. And only the things that are done in Christ and for his glory with that right motive actually brings an eternal return. You know, nothing to which we devote ourselves has the eternal value of serving God. And we have the blessing every day when we awaken, whether we have a position in the church, community, or whatever. Every morning when we wake up, we have an opportunity to serve the Lord. You know, one of the greatest demonstrators of this that we have is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a great man of God. A lot of people might look back at his life and he died a physical death very early and he spent a lot of his life pointing to another and they would say, well, you played second fiddle. Well, yes, he did, but he played second fiddle to the greatest of all time. A lot would say, well, you lost your life early. And he would say, yes, but I lost my life for a cause that is great and my ministry continues beyond it. 
In fact, as we look at John the Baptist today, and we'll look at him more in depth, he had a great self-realization and understanding of his mission. He was comfortable in his skin spiritually, and even though his life ended early, he had no regrets. Look with me at John 3, beginning verse 25. It said, Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John the Baptist and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about who was, and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John responded, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend with stand, who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted um, his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For God sent him and he speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the son of God will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains upon him. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today again, we thank you that if we would truly serve you for your glory and in your power and within our role and our giftedness, that, Father, we can, when that day you call us, we can die triumphantly knowing that our lives have made a difference in your kingdom. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist. As we look at his life, I pray that we would take on the attitudes and the actions of him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We close this study in the first three chapters of John's gospel with a final look at the ministry of John the Baptist. John was a man greatly esteemed by Jesus, we read in Matthew chapter 11. He was a man so esteemed by the peoples that Herod himself feared John the Baptist. And so we look today, though, at what really made the man, and it was this. He had a love for God in obedience to God, and we see that not only did he serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but he served the Lord Jesus Christ with a pure motive. And we have a great example of godly servanthood in John the Baptist today. I shared a few weeks ago uh, that I had read a biography on the life of A.G. Finney and, and written by uh, E.E. E. Shellhammer. Uh, in this book, he talked about the five qualities of a minister, and one of the qualities was purity. And, and purity in this aspect, he was speaking about purity of motive, purity of intent, Serving God in such a way that the glory goes to God, not with impure motives, not with a self-interest. And John the Baptist really fit 
of that description, one who served God with a pure motive. You know, every one of us is a minister. Now, I may have the name Reverend before my name. I may have been trained in the study of the Bible and carrying out pastoral ministry, but that doesn't mean that I'm the only minister. In fact, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is called to be a minister. We're called to serve. And as we look at John the Baptist today, we need to ask ourselves two questions. One, where am I serving? Now, you may have a position in this church, but again, you don't, you're not limited by a position. Where am I serving God? Whom am I serving? Uh, who am I ministering to? And then the second question is, why am I serving God? So first, where am I serving? Second, why am I serving? I want to look at John the Baptist's example today. I want to look at uh, a few qualities that he possessed. And the first is this in his service. John possessed a humility in his service to God. You know, our text begins with a dispute in verse 25. John's disciples, they were in a disagreement with a Jew. We don't know much about who that Jew was. We know the disagreement was over purification, but we know that it really led into an issue over who was baptizing more people. And so John's disciples, those who had followed John, and remember John was preaching a baptism of repentance to prepare for the kingdom of God was coming. His disciples came to him and they had a problem. They said, the one you testified about, that's Jesus. He is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. And so they're coming to John the Baptist and they're saying, look, you've had this ministry. People have really been following you, but, but something's changed. They're no, longer cha they're no longer following you. They're following Jesus. And so not only uh, do we see the response by John the Baptist, but we see his attitude in this and what it really means to serve God. And it was this, John was serving not about John. He was serving about Jesus. And two verses in our text reveal his humble attitude. Look, look at verse 28. When they come to him, he says this, you yourselves can testify in verse 28, I am not the Messiah. In fact, we could stop after those first three words and we learn a lot about John the Baptist. I am not. In other words, he looked at himself and he understood that he was not all that, that he himself was expendable. And if we're not careful in our service to God, we'll begin to think that no one can serve like we can. We'll begin to think that we're serving and people are coming to me and it makes me feel good to have people following me, but they're not to follow us. They're to follow the Lord. In 1 Samuel 26, we see that King David, before he became king, had a man who walked alongside of him, Abishai. And Abishai was giving him an ungodly counsel. And the ungodly counsel was this. Saul was the king. Saul was a wicked man. And Abishai was saying, let me just go and strike him. And I will not have to strike King Saul a second time and you'll become king. But David said, let the Lord be the Lord. He'll decide when that time is, but I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. In other words, David in humility would not assert himself even over a godless king. And, and what does the scripture say about David? David had a heart that was like God, a heart after God's heart. 
And here we see John the Baptist, his disciples, in the same spirit of that one who came alongside David. And they're saying, look, everybody's going toward Jesus. You need to do something about it. But he would not assert himself. Look at what he says in, in verse 31. He says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Who is the one who comes from heaven? Jesus. Who is the earthly one? The earthly one is John himself. He's speaking of himself in the third person there. And this is very important for you to know. If you desire to have a heart to serve God, and it's this. You must have a right view of yourself. You must have a right view. You must understand, I'm nothing but a man. I'm nothing but a woman. God has called me in this. It's not about me. It's not that I shine. It's not that I bring attention to myself. But all the glory is to go to God. But the problem is pride is all too prevalent. You know, the preacher John Edwards, years ago, uh, during the great spiritual awakening of the 1800s, was preaching to a group of about 800 men. And it was a men's only conference, and Edwards uh, was preaching over a weekend. And, and uh, between sessions, as he was preaching and teaching, a woman sent Edwards a note. And the note basically asked him to pray for her husband because he had been unloving toward her and uh, was pride-filled. And so Edwards took the note and read it personally, and then he decided that he would read it in the assembly of, of the congregation of men and ask the man who was guilty of this to raise his hand. He did so, and 300 of the 800 men raised their hands. Listen, pride is a grievous thing. By its nature, it's hard from which to repent, hard to receive correction, hard to actually honestly evaluate ourselves when we're filled with pride. But follow this, it is unfitting for a servant of God. As bold as John was, as convicting as his ministry was, as feared as he was, as confident as he was, John's most useful quality before God was his humility. He possessed a humility. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 17, and he said basically, what servant, if he serves his master, does he come in and receive the applaud of that master? No, the master says, uh, go after you've done your day's work, serve me, and then you may eat later. And what is he talking about then? He's saying basically this, the servant just did his duty. When we begin to elevate ourselves in the service of God, begin to think that, we're, that, that we cannot be replaced, when we begin to elevate ourselves, we need to remind ourselves that we're merely God's servants doing his duty. And so we see that John possessed humility. Do you, do you possess a humble spirit? Maybe you're not a great evaluator of that, but you can pray, God, uh, make me more humble. But we see a second thing about John. He knew his role. He knew his role, his responsibility. Look at verse 27. John responded again to this plea from his disciples to get back those, John, who are following you. He says, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. 
You see, he understood that the ministry was a sacred trust. He was speaking specifically about Jesus. Jesus was baptizing, and he said, really, Jesus can only receive that because it comes from the Father. But also implicit in that was that he himself as a servant had a God-given ministry, that it was not something that he aspired to, that he attained through his own ability, but it was a stewardship from God. Do you realize that God has given you a stewardship? You say, Pastor, I don't know what that's to. Hey, your life is a stewardship. He has given you your life. And you have a decision every day whether you're going to serve self or serve God with your life. John made it very clear that he would serve God and that he would stay in his lane. John made that clear that he would not intrude on what was rightfully Jesus's. Years ago, I used to enjoy the game of tennis, and in the game of doubles, uh, you would play, and, and each person would have his or her position on the court, and there was a term that was used called poaching, and, and some of you ho hunters understand what poaching on someone's land is, but in the game of tennis, someone who poaches moves out of his or her standard territory on the court and begins to try to hit the ball that the partner is supposed to be hitting. And, and if they're very fortunate, they may not get hit with the racket upside the head because they're poaching. They're moving in and trying to make a play someone else is intended to make. You see, John had those around him who were trying to encourage him to poach into Jesus' territory. John, he's taking the glory away from you Take those people back. But he understood his role. Look at verse 28. Again, he says, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He was a forerunner. A forerunner went ahead of a dignitary, preparing the way, clearing the way, making sure it was safe, announcing that the, the dignitary would come. And so notice John understands his role. When they're trying to say, take back the crowd who was following you, increase your baptisms above Jesus' baptisms, he was saying, you don't understand. I was sent ahead of him, not to compete with him, but to prepare the way that people would follow him. And then he uses another great illustration that makes sense to us. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, that is uh, the best man who stands by and listens to him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Now, I've performed a number of wedding ceremonies. It's never about the best man unless he forgets the ring. Then you've got a problem. It's about the groom. It's about the bride. The best man is not to be standing up and waving and saying, look to me. He's to have his eyes Every good mistress of ceremonies will tell you on the bride and on the groom. And so John the Baptist is saying, look, I was a forerunner to make the way clear for him, not to compete with him. I, I'm, the, I'm the groomsman. I'm there to, to make his way better, to rejoice with him rather than to draw attention to myself. Listen, you're in a state of maturity, in a blessed state, when you understand God's call on your life and you're able to serve him in that giftedness, John was able to do that. He didn't try to make himself more. He stayed in his lane. He found his place of service. God was glorified through it. 
You know, God has gifted you today, and he's gifted you to serve, not so that you can stand in front of people or that people would know you, although that may be one part of it, but that's not the end result. The end result is that God would use your gifts and your calling to increase his kingdom. Are you serving where God's called you to serve? Are you using your gifts, and are you doing so with the right motive? What I want to see a third thing about John the Baptist, and it's this. He exalted Jesus. You know, there's one thing that even the best of servants, the best of servants, needs to avoid, and that's this, forgetting why he or she serves. We serve not that people would say what a great person we are, but what a great Savior we serve. Matthew 10, 42 is a familiar portion of scripture and whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple truly I tell you will never lose his reward what is he saying you're doing it but he qualifies it because you're a Christian that you're doing it not to draw attention to yourself but to draw attention to the faith the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you know there are a lot of statements that are said by and John the Baptist in the New Testament, but maybe nothing more clearly articulates John and his purpose than does verse 30 of our text, where John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, obviously, he's speaking time-wise, chronologically there, because the forerunner for a time would say, get ready, he's coming. But then when the dignitary comes, he doesn't keep saying he's coming. He's fulfilled that role time-wise, and he moves in the background. But it's not just chronologically that he's speaking about here, but he is speaking humbly about the purpose of his ministry. And the purpose of his ministry was not to overshadow Jesus, but to exalt Jesus over himself. Every good minister of the Lord yields allegiance and glory to God. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an obligation to exalt Jesus in your life. And there are three ways that John did it. He exalted Jesus as the heavenly authority. That Jesus has and he had then an authority no one else had. Notice what it says at the end of verse uh, 30, or the beginning of verse 34, and then the last part of verse 35. In the beginning of verse 34, for God sent him and he speaks God's words. He has an authority. When Jesus speaks, he is speaking the words of God. Verse 35, we see as he speaks there, the Father loves the Son and has given what? All things into his hands. Jesus is uniquely, is uniquely the heavenly authority. He is God in the flesh. Secondly, he exalted Jesus, John did, as the one who is uniquely loved by the Father. That's what it says in verse 35, the Father loves the Son. Listen, God loves his own, but there is a special love that the Father has for the Son. And John draws it to their attention here. The Father loves the Son. 
And this tells us a lot about the Father on this Father's Day, that he must love us a whole lot because he sent his only begotten son, his beloved son, to Calvary to die for us. In fact, the scripture says that for that moment when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father had to avert his look at Jesus Christ as he took upon himself the wrath of the world, the sins of the world. God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten, and as we see here, a dearly loved son. How could you reject such a love? Think of what you treasure the most in your life, a possession, the person you love the most, giving that up for someone else. That's what God did for us. Jesus is exalted as the one uniquely loved by the Father. But then there's a final and important thing. John exalted Jesus as the sole Savior for mankind. Listen today. We live in a pluralistic society. We're living in days today where people say your right and my right are both rights. It's not right. There are people today that would say there are many ways to get to heaven. There isn't. There's only one way. And that way is Jesus Christ. People say all religions lead to the same end. They don't believe the Bible then because uh, Proverbs 16, 25 says there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. Jesus Christ, our Savior, alone is Savior of the world. He said of himself exclusively, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And what does John write about him here in John's gospel? The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. You see, we have this wrath of God problem. And it's not some uncontrolled anger but is God's righteous response as a holy God to sinful man and Jesus we saw a few weeks ago averted the wrath of God he took upon himself the wrath of those who would believe on him and I want you to see that the Bible's very clear that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that a person is saved in fact, we see in verse 34 that the Spirit himself gives testimony. God sent him, and he speaks God's word, and he gives the Spirit without measure. What does the Spirit do? The very thing that John the Baptist does, it, he points. He, the Spirit, points to Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he left, said, it's good that I leave because the Comforter would not come. And what will he do? He'll convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. He'll, he'll point, he'll remind you of the words that I spoke. He exalts Jesus, even as John did. You know, we close this series of messages today with this challenge. Live your life so that it would make an eternal difference. John the Baptist did that. He was esteemed not just by men, but by the Lord himself. Wouldn't it be great to stand before God one day and him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But the interesting thing about John the Baptist is he went around not looking around at the approval of people. He just did what God called him to do. He just served 
within his ability, within his gifts. He simply served others by being humble. That didn't mean he was weak. He was feared. But he knew his calling. He stayed in his lane. He exalted Jesus Christ. And I think unlike the gentleman we looked at at the very beginning of this message, when John concluded his life, he had no regrets because he had invested his life in the one who is the life, Jesus Christ. So these questions rest with us today. Are we serving him? Are we serving the Lord Jesus Christ? If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to make him Lord of your life right now because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is found in no one other than him. Wouldn't you believe in him? And if you've trusted him, are you serving him? Maybe in a capacity here in the church, maybe in the community, in the workplace. Or do you consider yourself, as John, a servant who's to go before Jesus every day and to be his hands, to be his feet, to minister for his glory. And then if you are serving, why are you serving God? It's great to stop and ask ourselves to evaluate, why am I doing? What am I doing? First, what am I doing? And then why am I doing what I'm doing? John's a great example, a model of service for us. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we thank you for John the Baptist, a man greatly esteemed by Jesus, but a man who had the right perspective of himself, who saw himself not as the one to gain attention, but to avert attention from himself, a groomsman, a forerunner, whose intent was to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Father, we cannot bring glory to you if we have not trusted in you. So if there be any here today who have yet to trust you, I pray that this would be the day. Father, there are many here today who have trusted you. Lord, you've given them air to breathe. You've given them a clear mind to be here today. I pray, Lord, that you would convict each of us, that, Lord, we would live each day to serve you for your glory in the ministry that you've given us, not going beyond it, but staying within that calling. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.